Thanks so much, Arnie, for that. Uh, those are reminders in those songs that, that God is great and his love is so great, and, and we have a part of that. For the reminder, uh, which we're going to see from our text, and we read elsewhere, that, that we are no longer slaves, but we are, uh, by Jesus' word and work, adopted as sons and daughters into his family. And, and again, that great reminder of just the amazing grace and unending love of God. Let's continue to worship together through prayer. Let's pray together. God, thank you again so much this morning that we can be together uh, online. Uh, we, we do long for the day when we can gather together in a, in a larger room and, and worship together and sing together and, and encourage one another and pray with and for one another and, and, and spur one another on towards you. Uh, but God, I pray that we would leverage this time where we, uh, where we are online only to, uh, to continue to grow, uh, to con- continue to hear from you and, and know your word and, and that, that we would come back stronger when we come back. My God, I pray that you would speak to each of us this morning, uh, wherever we are and, and whatever we're going through. Uh, we know that, that your word speaks and your word reveals things in our lives, and, and we know that you are the God who speaks. And so we ask that we would hear from you uh, this morning from your word. As we open up to John chapter 8, I pray that, that you would use uh, this uh, confrontation uh, between Jesus and, and the religious leaders of the day to uh, again, show things in our own hearts, and our own lives, and, and see uh, where we are maybe believing things that aren't true, or we are leaning on things that, uh, that are incorrect and, and are actually leading us away from you. So I pray, again, that you would speak to us through this text and this time. Uh, as we started our service, uh, we remember that the, the, the work of the Cochrane Pregnancy Care Center, and so we, we pray for their baby bottle boomerang campaign, uh, that it would be one that, that, that goes well for them, that it would continue to, uh, they would continue to be able to, to resource and, and help out uh, young families and young parents uh, in Cochrane and out into the Bow Valley as well. We pray that you would uh, work in and through their ministry and bless their ministry, and, and thank you for the opportunity to be a part of it. And God, I thank you for all the things that you continue to do in and through the Bow Valley and that we at Trinity get to be a part of. And so uh, as, we, as we give back to, we, we remember, God, that you've been so generous with us and you give us so many things. And so we give back to, to make your name great here in our, in our neighborhoods, uh, in our towns, in, in the Bow Valley, in our province and country and around the world. And we pray all these things in Jesus' good, good name. Amen. Well, if you've got a, a Bible with you, I'll invite you to, to open up or click your way through to John chapter 8. We're about in the, the middle of the chapter this morning, uh, starting around verse 31. If you've been uh, tracking with us, if you've been reading through John or, or following along in our message series, you may notice that, that we're slowly getting into really critical territory here. Uh, John's biography of Jesus is one that that really sort of rushes us to that last week, that rushes us towards the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, The book's got 21 chapters in it, and and already at chapter 12, which we'll get to in a little bit, John is into that final week of Jesus' life. And so we've got three or so years of public ministry, but more than half of John's gospel is the last week. This morning, we find ourselves in chapter 8, and, and all of chapter 7 and 8 are happening at the same time, and we're only about six months out from that last week of Jesus' life. And so uh, the question we need to keep asking ourselves is, why has John rushed us to this point? What's his, what's his hurry? Why is he he's sort of urgently getting us to that last week of Jesus' life? 
Well, I think one of, our, uh, one of the reasons and part of our answer comes from, from why John wrote at all. Do you remember why that is? We mentioned it once or twice in this series, but we'll highlight it again. If you go right near the end of the gospel in John chapter 20, uh, verse 30 and 31, he writes this for us, that Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that aren't recorded in this book. But these ones, the things that I've written here, he says, we've written them so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, believe that he is the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John's written this biography to give you and I everything we need to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Son of God, that he's the one that the whole Old Testament pointed to, that he's the one humanity had been waiting for and longing for since sin and death entered the world in Genesis chapter 3. And not just that, but, but by believing, we would have access to life because of all that Jesus has done. That's why John wrote and it's, it's really helpful that he actually wrote his thesis statement so plainly for us. We're not left guessing and trying to interpret, okay, well, what's the point of this story? And why are we talking about this? And why are you moving so fast, John? But he tells us, here's what it's for. Now, if belief is one of the major purposes of John's writing, if not the major purpose, then we should probably be able to trace that theme throughout the gospel, shouldn't we? Well, we can John's gospel is, is filled with examples of how people would, would claim to be, be with Jesus and believe Jesus, and yet so far it seems like no one really, maybe a couple, but, but no one really has been able to get that belief to kind of stick or to believe in, in the right thing. They don't quite get who Jesus is yet. We can walk through a few spots here. Remember, back in chapter 2, we, we looked at the, the wedding in Cana and Jesus turning the water into wine. And then John tells us that right after that, he, he headed into Jerusalem for the Passover, a couple Passovers ago in our timeline now. And we read that, that many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. And the next verse, it says that Jesus didn't entrust himself to them because he knew what was in their hearts. He knew that, that the people had been attracted to the sign, that they saw this thing Jesus did and they wanted more of that, but they missed what the sign was pointing to. All of the things Jesus does, they're not just parlor tricks, they're not just signs and miracles in and of themselves, but they're pointing beyond that thing to something greater. But the people missed it. And this, this theme of misunderstanding is another massive theme in John. A little bit later, we saw the feeding of the 5,000, and we read that the people then saw that Jesus had fed everyone with just a little boy's lunch, and they tried to seize him and make him king, but, but he left because it says his hour had not yet come. And remember then, they went across the lake, and the crowds followed him and found Jesus, and they said, Jesus, well, how, did, how did you get here? Where are you going? Can we hang out again today? And he said to them, listen, you tried to grab me to be your king because I fed you. You're thinking with your stomachs, but you've missed it. You've got bigger issues than your stomach. In chapter 6, Jesus calls people to a deeper level of belief, and, and many, if not most, turned, we read, and left him. And now we've just seen in these last couple of chapters, chapter 7 and 8, Jesus is at this major Jewish festival, and he said a few really important things and, and kind of crowd-turning, ear-turning things. And in chapter 7, he said, if anyone thirsts, 
Let him come to me and drink, and out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He's, he's stepped into this festival and claimed to be the thing that the major celebration points to. He says, from me, you'll get the promised Holy Spirit that the prophets have talked about. And then in chapter 8, last week we looked at this in verse 12, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. He stepped into this other light celebration at this same major festival and said, whoever follows me won't walk in darkness anymore, but you'll have the light of life. Again, in saying these things and doing the things he's done, Jesus has been making himself equal to God. He said that he was sent by God, that he does what the Father tells him to, and that he was, in fact, uniquely God. And then we saw last week that Jesus is is really clear in verse 28. It says, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, you will know that I am. He takes the divine name for God on himself there. And he goes on and says, and and you'll know that I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. He's just uh, uh, said that he is sinless. And so the section we looked at last week concluded in verse 30, where John writes, as he was saying these things, as Jesus was saying these things, many believed in him. Now, as good readers and having seen the examples we just walked through, our question should be, really? They, they believed? We've, we've heard this before. And so this is kind of where we pick it up in our text this morning. We've got this backdrop of this really important uh, major festival in Jerusalem. Jesus has just used the divine name of God for himself, and people have claimed to believe him. And so here's the question for all of us. What does a true believer look like? Again, as we've just seen, we we have seen multiple examples of a a fickle faith so far in the gospel. But what does a true disciple, what does a, a true follower of Jesus look like? In our text today, we'll see three characteristics of a disciple. There's, there's more than that, of course, but in these verses, Jesus is really going to focus our attention on three. Uh, sometimes Jesus is really clear with the words he says, and this is one of those times. So let me start reading our text. John 8, reading from verse 31. So Jesus turned and he said to those who believed in him. This is, now he's not just talking to the crowd, but he's kind of honing in his focus on these people who said, okay, Jesus, we believe, we're in. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Simple, right? Thank you, Jesus. Let's move on. Now, we've noticed, noted this before, and even this morning, that Jesus knows the hearts of those who are around him, those who are responding to him, and those who are following him, and those who claim to follow him. And so in the midst of this conversation, or again, maybe, this, maybe better, this altercation in the temple where Jesus has stepped in and said, uh, I, I am living water, you'll get living water from me, uh, I am the light of the world. Now they're having this conversation and, and people start lining up saying, okay, Jesus, we're in. So he turns specifically to them and says, listen, here's what it means. Here's what a, a true disciple is. It's, it's one who re- abides. It's one who remains. It's one who continues in my teaching. It's one who, who follows along with what I'm saying. And that means that you will then know the truth, and that truth will bring you freedom. 
We can summarize these three characteristics into a single sentence, I think, like this. A a true disciple holds on to Jesus' word, discovers the truth in Jesus' word, and finds freedom in that truth. That's really our big idea for this morning, that a true disciple holds on to Jesus' word, discovers the truth in Jesus' word, and finds freedom in that truth. Let's look at each of these three points. First, uh, disciples or, or followers of Jesus hold on to his word. Now, there is a lot that's, that's packed into the idea of abiding in Jesus, as the ESV says here. Depending on your translation, you might see the word uh, abide or continue to follow or to remain as, they, as the translators try to circle around and, and identify and sort of root out this concept here. Jesus is going to come back uh, to this concept of abiding in in full force later in chapter 15, so you can look forward to that. But let me start with what this sort of believing isn't, what abiding isn't. It's not just rote memorization. This isn't just intellectual assent, okay, Jesus, I agree with you. This isn't a one-time, okay, Jesus, I agree with you, but now I'm going to keep on going with my life just as it was. This isn't a, a checking off of religious boxes. It's not half-heartedly going through an annual Bible reading plan or attending church online or whenever you get to the video when it's convenient for you. Remaining in Jesus' word, abiding in Jesus' word means studying it, memorizing it, taking a verse and, and sitting in what it says It means obeying. It means treasuring the word. It means finding it more precious than anything else. This means we can't just take what Jesus says and, and, and not leave without being changed. It's not like we can, can take Jesus' words and then just try and shoehorn them into our, uh, the way we've been living already and continue on that way. Abiding in Jesus isn't us interpreting the word and, and making it fit with how we see, see things, but rather it's, it's letting the word interpret us. I saw a post on Instagram this week that helpfully said, you know, the Bible should not just affirm you. It should challenge you. Most, uh, if not all weeks when we get together, I, I do pray that the Spirit would challenge and convict us through the word because that's a, a, a big part of what it means to abide in the word. That we would let Jesus' word shine a light in the darkness, in the dark areas in our lives, and, and reveal our needs to us so we can hand them over to him. See, holding on to Jesus' word, a, a, abiding in Jesus' word, it means committing for the long term. Not just when it suits us, not just when it's easy, not just when it's comfortable. It means a lifelong journey of, of testing the word, saying, okay, God, you, says this, you said this, so I'm going to believe it. I'm going to step out in faith and walk in this, and, and I hope you've got me, and we can trust that he does. It's, it's a lifelong journey of, of wrestling with the word. When, when God says, I am good, but the things around us don't look good. Remember, we, we looked at the, the book of Habakkuk and, and, and kind of that idea of hope in the dark when, when God says, I'm good, trust in that, but things didn't look good. It means being shaped by the word, letting letting what God says about us, what Jesus says about us, define and shape who we are, not what the culture and people around us says. And ultimately, it means being shaped more and more into the image of Jesus himself. So Jesus has turned to this group in the temple 
who have claimed that they believe in him. And he's just told them, listen, here's, here's what it means. A true disciple holds on to my word, dis- discovers a truth in my word, and finds freedom in that truth. Well, how do these believers respond? How do these people respond? Right away we see that they're actually quite upset, incensed even. How could Jesus possibly turn to them and say, you need to be freed? Look at verse 33. They answered Jesus, we're the offspring of Abraham and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you can say you will become free? Now, the the first thing we could say is, look guys, we know a little bit of the history of Israel. You've been exiled multiple times. You've been conquered multiple times. And as you're speaking, you're actually under the authority of Rome. So what do you mean you've never been enslaved? But what they're, they're more likely talking about here is they, they have always had this sense of God has chosen us. God is with us. God is for us. We haven't followed uh, perfectly all the time or often perhaps, but no matter where we are, God gives us a freedom to worship him. And so they, they've got this sort of spiritual freedom idea that we can also track through the Old Testament. But here's the mistake that they're making in claiming this freedom. They're clinging just to their, their spiritual lineage. We've come from Abraham. They're clinging to their religion, their works, their process, when everything that Abraham was actually about when everything that their Jewish law and Jewish history pointed to was standing right in front of them in Jesus. They said, no, no, we're, we're with him. Jesus will go on to say to them, my word actually finds no place in you, in verse 37. And he'll say to them a bit later, you actually can't bear to hear my word because you're separated from it, in verse 43. And then he really drives us home in verse 47 saying, whoever is from God, Whoever follows God, whoever is obedient to God, listens to God's word. And this is why you don't listen, because you're not from God. These people thought they had it all together. We're from Abraham. But Jesus is saying, you've missed it. These people, they they liked Jesus when he fit into their worldview and their framework. But even though they they claimed to be spiritual descendants of Abraham, and later in verse 41, they actually claimed God as their father, Jesus says, you've missed it. Your rules are your God. You're, You're trusting in the lie that says, doing this stuff, coming down from this bloodline, will save us. If we go back and we read the story of Abraham in Genesis, and if we see, he's actually mentioned many times in the New Testament as well. It's said of Abraham that he, he trusted God, he believed God, he had faith in God. We could say he abided with God, and that was counted as righteousness. Yet the religious leaders looked at their works, they looked at Jesus, and planned to kill him, which was not very much like Abraham. Listen, sometimes you and I, were a lot like those religious leaders. We like Jesus when he agrees with us. We love it when the Bible agrees with us. But when Jesus or the Bible calls us to something that makes us uncomfortable, think of you know, the rich young ruler. Go and sell all you have and give to the poor. 
Think of what the Bible says about generosity, about relationships. Don't be angry. You might as well be killing people if you're angry. Think of what the Bible calls us to with in, in our relationships, in our sexual ethic, in our marriages, in all these things. When it makes us uncomfortable or it tells us maybe, the Bible tells us maybe we don't have it all figured out, maybe we don't know what we're doing, often we get upset and sometimes we even throw the whole thing out, walk away. And I think this might even be a, a more of a challenge in the world that we live in today because I can, I can go online and in seconds I can find a group of people that I can identify with online that will affirm pretty much anything I want to say about myself. No matter what I think about money or sex or relationship or food or people or government or morals, anything, within seconds, maybe minutes, I can find someone who will affirm and encourage those beliefs in me. But here's the thing. Just because someone affirms something in me, that doesn't make it right. Just because someone validates my feelings doesn't make those feelings true or trustworthy. And so Jesus pushes back on them and he says, listen, I am the truth. I'm bringing truth. And only my truth will really set you free. Commentator Gary Burge helpfully concludes, it may be one thing to follow a Jesus that we've engineered in our religious consciousness. It's quite another to stay with Jesus when he discloses who he really is. We're seeing that here, aren't we? Many believed. Jesus says who he is, and it's like, wait a minute, Jesus. See, following Jesus, it's, it's both free and freeing, as we're about to see, but it's also costly. It takes a willingness for us to, to hold our lives and, and our beliefs up to his light and deal with what Jesus says about it. So the first thing, disciples, true disciples, hold on to Jesus' word. The second thing is, is that true disciples or true followers of Jesus discover the truth in his word. Now, John has told us earlier in the book, and we keep coming back to this because it's, it's so important, that Jesus is the light of the world. And we, we started off the book reading that the light has come to expose the darkness, to, to reveal the things hidden in darkness. But, but the people, and that's us too, prefer the darkness because they enjoy what the darkness gives them. Jesus has, has come to, to reveal what we've swept under the rug, to, to show us what's behind the curtain, as it were, and, and reveal what's behind the lives and lies that we sometimes so often cherish. Verse 34, Jesus responds to them, Truly, I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. He says to these religious people, these so-called believers, they, they're calling themselves believers. He says, you don't see it, but you're actually enslaved. You, you think that because you can trace your spiritual lineage back to Abraham, you're good. You think that because you're religious, you're good. But again, he knows their hearts, and he says, but you're trying to kill me. He says, you've, you've got this sin in your heart, which actually means you're actually a slave to that thing. Now, what this sin Jesus was pointing out, it could be any number of things. It could be their, their unbelief. It could be their uh, religious uh, religiosity. It could be their pride. It could be any number of other things as well. But he's saying, this thing you've got in your heart, it's enslaving you. You're in bondage to it. 
You think you have the truth, but that thing you think is truth is actually a lie because truth is found in me, Jesus says. He will say later, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. So Jesus goes on and says, listen, actually, uh, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin, and there's a consequence to being in sin. There's a consequence. There's, there's, there's a, an action. There's a result of being a slave. And using an analogy from that time, Jesus says, listen, slaves aren't really part of the family. You've identified yourself as part of Abraham's family, but, but slaves aren't really a part of the family. They don't stay in the household forever. Now, in, in those days, it was likely that, that a slave or a household servant would have lived with the family they worked for. They may have spent years and years in the same household, maybe a, maybe a generation or more. And they, they could have really felt like part of the family. Uh, there's, there's cases we know of where, where the, the servants or the hired help or the slaves you know, ate with the family. They did life with the family. Maybe their kids played together. All these things, they felt like family, but ultimately they weren't. There was an inheritance that, that would go to a son or a daughter, but not the, the servant. There was an inheritance that would go to the children, but not to the slave. And they could be sold or, or let go really at any time. Jesus saying, listen, the, the slaves, if you're a slave to sin, you're not really a part of the household. A true disciple holds to Jesus' words and discovers the truth in his words. And the truth is that every one of us is a slave to sin. We are all in, in some sort of bondage to something. But Jesus, as a son, has come from the Father is perfectly obedient to the Father, does what the Father asks, speaks what the Father speaks, and it's by his word, his work, his truth, that we as slaves get to be adopted as children. A true disciple holds on to Jesus' word, discovers the truth in Jesus' words, and finds freedom in that truth. And that's our last point. A true disciple finds freedom in the truth. Look at verse 36. Jesus says, so if the Son sets you free, you are truly free. We abide in Jesus' word. We remain in it. We, we let it wash over us. We let it interpret us. We, we are shaped and molded by it. We, we then discover the truth in Jesus' word. And then in Jesus, we are set free from our sin. Now, I, I would bet, and maybe this is just me, but I would bet that from time to time, you and I answer Jesus just like these guys do. We've never been enslaved to anything. Maybe you wouldn't use that word. Maybe you'd say, I'm not that bad. Look at these people. Maybe instead we just say, you know what, Jesus, I know you want to deal with this, but, but I could kick this habit any time if I, if I wanted to. I, I'm not enslaved to this thing. Or maybe we say, you know what, that's just who I am. God, you made me like this, so you better accept me like this. I'm not a slave to all of these things. Again, here's the way this goes for us. We hear Jesus, we believe in Jesus, then we cling to his word, to his teaching. We continue to follow, we remain in it, we abide in it. We learn more and more about him, more and more about that truth, and then we, we find a greater freedom and victory over our sin. And that's true freedom. D.A. Carson says this, True freedom is not the liberty to do anything we please, 
can I suggest that's the promise of worldly freedom? To do whatever you want, whenever you want, with whoever you want? But he says, but true freedom is the liberty to do what we ought. And it's genuine liberty because doing what we ought now pleases us. Jesus offers us freedom, but we have to accept it. The freedom comes through his word, the one that he heard the Father speak, the one that he hears the Father speak. True freedom isn't what Instagram tells us our life should look like. It's not a new beach every weekend. It's not another hike. It's not more square footage, another relationship, another sexual encounter. True freedom isn't doing whatever we want whenever we want. The Bible calls that actually slavery to our our temporary passions and lusts. Slavery to the desires we think will make us happy, but ultimately will leave us empty. The Bible says you chase after these created things. It's the idolatry we talked about in week 17. You look at these created things and you try to put them in the, the ultimate place when really we need to turn to the creator. See, real freedom isn't just from finding the most we can in the next 30 years or or 30 weeks or even 30 minutes. But real freedom is found in considering the next 30 million years. In that life that, that Jesus brings and gives, the freedom that Jesus brings and gives now and into eternity. So when we remain faithful to Jesus' word, we know and grow in his truth. That truth sets us free from the sin and the desires in our life to find all the enjoyment we need and we're created for in God, through Jesus. We are no longer slaves, but we're sons and daughters. As we continue in his word, Jesus promises that we will, again, understand more about him and we'll be unbound, unshackled, untied from the sin in our lives that binds us ultimately to joylessness and he will give us joy. So here's where we're left. In the passage, the religious guys here, they think they're doing well. They see themselves as, as free, as sons of Abraham, of, as children of God. But Jesus says, listen, you guys are actually enslaved to sin. You are intolerant or, or unable to accept the truth. And you're actually offspring of Satan. There's only two choices here. So we need to take a look at ourselves. Which, which camp are we in? Do we see ourselves as, as having it all together, being pretty good, doing the right things, having the right heritage? Or are we disciples that hold on to Jesus' word, discover the truth in Jesus' word, and find freedom in that truth? See, our, our hope, our ultimate hope, is not found in our ability to check off religious boxes, to do the right things, to to live a good life with or without God, whatever that looks like. But true hope and meaning and purpose and identity and value are all found in the freedom we discover in Jesus' word. As we hang on to it, abide in it, remain in it, study it, meditate on it, dwell in it, allow it to mold and shape us as we follow Jesus' teaching. Our hope is found in him. And as we cling to his word and as we allow it to reveal the truth in us, we will find freedom. And just to be really clear, this is a process. This is not an overnight change. This is not a switch we can flick and everything is going to be great from now on. 
There will be times when we mess up. There will be times when we once again lean on our own understanding, when we try to trust in our own abilities, when we try to trust in something created instead of the creator. There will be times when we sin and go our own ways. But we can always come back to Jesus. Life with Jesus won't always be easy, but it will ultimately be good. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for this text. Thank you for your words. I pray that um, this definition of a disciple would be one that, that rings in our minds, that we would continue in your word, that we would know the truth, that we would find freedom in your truth. I pray, Holy Spirit, that for everyone listening right now, that, that you would work in their hearts and you would, you would stir up things that, that maybe we're, we're hanging on to that, that aren't of you, that aren't of God, that aren't true. And if you feel like right now God's doing that, that, that God's showing something in your life where you're, you're trusting in something that's not him, or you're, you're leaning in your job for your identity, or your relationships, or your finances, or whatever else, just hand it over. Say, Jesus, forgive me. I, I want your life. I want your truth. I want to be set free. And we pray all these things in Jesus' good name. Amen.